the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producer, Clark Hilton engineer. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. I want to just begin by saying congratulations to the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, for winning the uh, World Series. It's their first World Series title since 88 but their seventh championship in franchise history. Now, it was a shortened season. They won this shortened season. But as James Blend, who is a baseball guy, says, they probably would have been in that matchup anyway and probably would have emerged as the winner. So congratulations to the Dodgers. Hey, I want to remind you, it's, uh, it's too late to mail your ballot here in Oregon, but you still can vote, um, but you need to go to an official drop-off site Uh, They're located all across the state of Oregon, um, and they've made it easy for us to find them uh, nearest to us. Uh, As I mentioned yesterday, it was the last day to return your ballot by mail in Oregon. That's because the U.S. Postal Service is really swamped this year around all across the country. You can and should still vote, and uh, you need to drop off your ballot um, in the mail at an official drop site, not in the U.S. Postal Service, but at an official official drop-off site uh, with your county elections office. They're located all across the state. You can um, use the Oregon Dropbox locator on the Secretary of State's website to find the nearest location to you. Just enter your registered uh, voting address and um, it will call up an interactive map with nearby drop-off locations. So do make note of that. If you've already mailed your ballot or turned it in uh, at an official drop site, you can check its status by going to um, Oregon's My Vote system to find out when your ballot was received and your vote was counted. Uh, All ballots are due by 8 p.m. on November the 3rd. So keep that in mind as the voting continues six days away from Election Day. Well, months after slashing $15 million from the Portland Police Bureau's budget and with the historic spike in shooting and violent crime, city commissioners in Portland um, on Wednesday are going to consider another historic $18 million cut. We're in an election year. We're choosing our city council. Keep that in mind. And the mayor, as part of the overall fall budget adjustment, Commissioner Joe Hardesty and Chloe Udaley, they're expected to push for the reduction with the money instead going toward housing and COVID relief, including allocating $7.5 million to the Housing Bureau to help people facing evictions amid the pandemic. Another 7.4 would go toward emergency food assistance. Neither Hardesty nor Udaley were available for interviews uh, about the details, but the council If they haven't already done so, we'll take it up today. Staff from Hardesty's office confirmed she's officially proposing the overall cut and reallocation. The decision, a spokesperson said, um, will be up uh, to Mayor and Police Commissioner Ted Wheeler. In a recent memo to her fellow commissioner, she gave a list of suggestions as to where that money could be found. On that list, she suggested eliminating 42 positions vacated by officers who retired in August. She estimated that would save uh, around $7 million. She also wants um, the Portland Police Bureau to eliminate a combined $1.2 million in funding for Special Emergency Response Team, or CERT, 
and the rapid response team. The latter is a key component in the Bureau's response to protests, which have continued almost nightly for months. So the, uh, in addition to not being available to protect the average citizen in the city of Portland, there would not be a response to uh, any violence that might emerge from what begins in many cases, not all, as peaceful protest. Meanwhile, rallies, protests uh, are slated during election week in Washington, D.C. and closer to home. I received from a local pastor a Pacific Northwest Community Action Network uh, email in which they outlined their plans to respond uh, following the election. Uh, I won't read all of it, uh, but it does say we must become organized and send a clear message that we will not tolerate voter disenfranchisement or election theft, nor will we tolerate a two-party system that serves only the wealthy and are instead committed to building a truly just and equitable society. Uh, in that, uh, To that end, um, they write, we ask urban and rural community members, tenants, workers, affinity groups, unions, and local organizations of any kind to join us in a wave of community action beginning November 4th. We cannot pay rent, so we will not pay rent. We cannot safely work, so we will not work. If you belong to a church group or neighborhood association, a union, or a Grange Please talk to your friends and community about what you can do to fight for the kind of change that won't uh, come from either party. By shutting down business as usual, defending our communities and building a web of mutual aid projects and neighborhood assemblies, and it goes on, we join the People's Strike campaign in calling for nationwide sustained resistance after the election and echo calls for international resistance to fascism in the first week of November. We're in a crisis. Let's act like it. Join us for an opening rally at noon on Wednesday at the 4th at North Park Blocks on this day and for the rest of the week of action. That's for uh, several days, uh, the 4th through the 11th. We will uh, we call for people of the Pacific Northwest to plan actions um, in response. Uh, and it gives uh, much more detail, but uh, some of the and some of the groups that are going to be a part of it that includes Antifa and other groups that you might recognize um, in any event. Right here in the city of Portland, there are several days of, in quotes, action that are planned. What the extent of that action is, is it peaceful protests? Are there demonstrations? It's not entirely clear. This is one isolated out of a series of uh, notices to that regard. But there are also rallies uh, and protests slated for election week in D.C. This is all part of a a movement across the country. The National Park Service, they say, has approved one permit for a prayer vigil in the nation's capital next week. It includes Election Day. It's reviewing nine other demonstration requests. Um, According to local outlets, the requests include religious gatherings, patriotic events, free speech demonstrations against the election results. Um, uh, The National Park Service issued a permit to Edwin Davis for a prayer vigil Uh, That's one permit that's been given. The permit for the largest gathering was submitted um, by Shutdown D.C. for 10,000 participants. Participants, The request is for a week of action to ensure free and fair elections from the 1st of November until the 9th, with locations including Washington Monument, Constitutional Gardens, Lafayette Square, and so on. This November, we're coming together to take direct action to defend democracy and ensure that every American's vote counts. Shut down D.C. organizers. Just a little sampling of what we can expect in the um, run up to the election. We are six days away from election day, but these demonstrations will begin just before, during, and following the election.
Well, Tony Bobolinsky, a former business associate of Hunter Biden, said in an interview on Tuesday that the Biden family shrugged off concerns that Joe Biden's alleged ties to his son's business deals could put a future presidential campaign at risk. He said in an interview with Tucker Carlson tonight that he raised concern in 2017 to the former vice president's brother, Jim Biden, that Joe Biden's alleged ties to a possible joint venture with a Chinese energy firm. Bobolinsky is a retired lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. He was the former CEO of Sinohawk Holdings, which he said was the partnership between the CEFC uh, chairman Yi Jiangming and the two Biden family members. I remember saying, Bobolinsky says, how are you guys getting away with this? Aren't you concerned? Uh, He claims that Jim Biden chuckled. Plausible deniability, he said directly to me, Bobolinsky said, in a cabana at the Peninsula Hotel. Well, in other developments, Hunter Biden ex-associates records don't show proof of Biden's business relationships amid unanswered questions. And Biden's campaign slammed Hunter Biden's associate, claiming that uh, overseas business uh, uh, was, in fact, uh, provable, calling it a desperate and pathetic farce. Bobolinsky calls the email genuine, saying Hunter sought his dad's advice on the deal. Meanwhile, protests turned violent in Philadelphia on Tuesday night. Demonstrators clashed with police, ransacked stores, beat a reporter covering the unrest. The city has been uh, gripped by violence after police shot and killed a 27-year-old black man a day earlier, who they said refused to drop his knife as he advanced toward them. The man was identified as Walter Wallace Jr., and a part of the uh, incident was caught on video. Police and city officials issued swift statements following the incident. They promised an investigation, but their assurances did little to assuage many in the city who see the shooting as another example of a black man being killed by police when they say the situation could have been diffused. Now, in this case, the mother had actually called uh, for help, not from law enforcement, but from health officials saying that her son, who was mentally ill, uh, needed to be restrained and hospitalized. Police were sent instead. She believed that her knife-wielding son should have been wounded rather than killed and has raised questions about the lethal response to her son's situation. Well, journalists covering some of the lootings described chaotic scenes they said appeared to be void of any police coverage. Police took to Twitter late Tuesday to announce there were about a 1,000 looters in the area of the Castor Aramingo Street alone. Videos showed stores with items strewn in aisles, looters carrying out kitchen appliances, other items. Many stores were boarded up, but crowds still managed to break through the windows. In other development, Philadelphia police say the looters targeted businesses on the second night of protests, and the family of Walter Wallace Jr. questioned the use of force, lethal force, as the Philadelphia Union president defended the officers. Also, the National Guard has been deployed in Philadelphia. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Chris Bruno in a classic interview, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Melanie Israel. She's a research associate in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. We'll talk about the Trump administration that won't accept abortion as a human right and what they're doing about it. We'll talk with Dr. Jay Richards. He's one of the authors of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. And we'll talk with uh, Joseph Whitcomb, who is a, well, a write-in candidate for mayor of the city of Portland. Who is he? 
What is he about? And do you want to write him in? We'll talk about all of that when he joins us later in the five o'clock hour. Well, President Trump denounced white supremacy 38 times in a new campaign video. Biden-Harris, they've criticized it. The um, Cook Political Report editor says it's time to sound the alarm on Biden's unlikely victory, or rather likely victory. Let me get that right. And Joy Reid posted an inaccurate tweet knocking the McConnell's SCOTUS win, saying all it took was for three people to die. What? Well, the Lincoln Project has been panned as uh, grifters after the report's founders looked to launch a media empire. And Microsoft's earnings continue to rise, the uh, ride rather, the pandemic-fueled demand for cloud and video gaming. The pandemic ushers in a new push for trade skill jobs, and coronavirus relief is likely on pause until after the election, as the president promises the best stimulus package. Twitter's Jack Dorsey warns that eroding Section 230 would collapse Internet communication. We'll talk about what that is a bit later in the program, if time permits. Well, Investor Business Daily poll, Trump is closing. Yesterday, they had Trump within four, noting President Donald Trump's support has surpassed his 2016 share of the vote. In the uh, Investor's Business Daily tip presidential poll update, well, Vice President Joe Biden appears to have lost ground among some key groups. Emerson has Biden up five. Critical note uh, in that story, independents are breaking for Trump 47 percent to 41 percent. And a look at the change from one week earlier might give some uh, ex- some explanation. A second pollster is predicting a Trump victory and Team Trump sees hope for victory in Wisconsin. CNN has stressed Uh, to find Pennsylvania voters aren't thrilled with Biden promising to destroy their jobs. Well, progressives want Sanders and Warren in a Biden cabinet, two people the voters very much rejected. And Biden's war on oil oil rather, would set America back from the story after a 50-year effort to diminish our reliance on Middle Eastern oil, which has miraculously happened at last. Biden would force America to transition to solar and wind industries currently dependent on Chinese supply chains. And Harvard University has announced a committee to begin removing names of historical figures. Harvard uh, President Lawrence Backhaus says the uh, committee should evaluate the individual's failings and flaws, but also the individual's positive contributions to the university and to society when determining whether the name of an historical figure should be removed from Harvard buildings, spaces, professorships, programs, and other named objects. So they're going to evaluate their failings and flaws, but also some positive contributions. That has not satisfied the crowd that's been responsible for canceling culture up to this point. So good luck, Harvard, on that one. Meanwhile, Joe Biden introduced himself as Kamala Harris' running mate in Atlanta. And a mistake or messaging, Biden and Harris say millions of Americans died from COVID. Biden's Islamic appeal, Joe touts endorsements from leading Muslim anti-Semitic groups. And no biggie, Biden misspoke on 60 Minutes. The staff says the actual cost of his free college plan is double what he stated. Nearly 70 million uh, people have already voted with a week to go. And Democrats are falling short in swing states, early voting statistics show. Well, Facebook has removed a black man's anti-Biden ad because, well, you can't be black and anti-Biden. And CNN won't run an ad warning Biden will raise taxes on the middle class. Apparently, they don't think you should know. Billionaire Jeff Bezos and Arch enemy of liberty has his sights on CNN. We'll see what happens there. And Trump's campaign website has briefly been hacked. A court uh, ordered 
forced ICE to release some 250 uh, criminals in the country illegally, and the Department of Homeland Security officials warn of a border invasion if Biden wins. The EPA has requested the Department of Justice investigate foreign funding of environmental groups, and satellite photos show construction at an Iranian nuclear site. Well, Tropical Storm Zeta has re-strengthened into a hurricane expected to bring a life-threatening storm surge to Louisiana. And Project Veritas has exposed a Texas ballot chaser illegally pressuring seniors to vote Democrat. The federal judge rules mask mandates and capacity restrictions on Colorado churches are unconstitutional. And Ohio's Education Department offered and withdrew, at least for now, a startling collection of anti-racist teaching supplements. Well, the sex cult leader, Keith Renner, has uh, no remorse as he's been sentenced to 120 years behind bars. Well, Costco is the latest retailer to drop the choca or something like that, coconut milk over allegations of forced monkey labor. Hmm. MSNBC's uh, Chris Hayes claims confirming Justice Barrett led to 100,000 deaths, all in the space of what, a day or two? 100,000 deaths. Uh, Let Us Worship, the event, drew 35000 to the National Mall. And Cracker Barrel is adding alcohol to their menu for the first time since its founding. Well, despite the recession, many Americans have been paying off debt and building savings during the pandemic. And a seven-year-old Vietnam, rather a 70-year-old Vietnam veteran, saved his neighbor. His neighbor's house was on fire. A bit of humor. CNN mourns Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation by flying a Chinese flag. At half mast. Okay, that was tongue in cheek. On this day in history, 1886, the Statue of Liberty, a gift from the people of France, is dedicated in New York's harbor by President Grover Cleveland. 1858, Roland Hussey Macy opens his first New York store at 6th Avenue and 14th Street in Manhattan. 1922, fascism comes to Italy as Benito Mussolini takes control of government. 1962, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev informs the United States that he has ordered the dismantling of missile bases in Cuba. In return, the U.S. secretly agrees to remove nuclear missiles from U.S. installations in Turkey. And on this day in history, 2013, Penn State says it would pay $59.7 million to 26 young men over claims of child sexual abuse at the hands of former assistant football coach Jerry Sandusky, who is currently serving time in prison. Well, Mark Zuckerberg, in uh, testifying before Congress, said he wasn't aware that Facebook election integrity officials uh, worked for Joe Biden. He said that he was not aware that the uh, individual making decisions about what can and cannot um, stand uh, on the uh, website uh, was, in fact, uh, connected to former Vice President Joe Biden during the Senate Commerce Committee's Section 230 hearing today. My understanding is that the person that is in charge of election integrity and security at Facebook is a former Joe Biden staffer. Is there anyone closely associated with President Trump in the same role at Facebook? That was a question from Senator John Thune asking the CEO, how do you all respond to that argument that there isn't sufficient balance in terms of the political ideology or diversity in your companies? And how do you deal with the lack of trust that creates among conservatives. I think uh, having balance is valuable and we try to do that. Zuckerberg responded, I'm not aware of the example you say of someone in charge of the process who worked for Biden in the past. So you, uh, we can follow up on that. You might want to be aware of the affiliation, I suppose, of people making those kinds of major uh, decisions. 
Just saying. Well, by the way, what is Section 230? Well, part of the 1996 Internet law is now at the center of the debate over social media companies' power after the president signed an executive order in May that could remove some of their liability protections if they engage in selective censorship harmful to national discourse. Well, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act states that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. It's been pivotal in the rise of today's social media by allowing not only Internet service providers, but also Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and others to be shielded from liability from content posted on their platforms by third parties. Well, Trump's executive order came shortly after Twitter attached uh, fact-checked warnings to some of his um, warnings. Section 230 was not intended to allow a handful of companies to grow into titans controlling vital avenues of our national discourse under the guise of promoting open forums for debate, and then to provide those behemoths blanket immunity when they use their power to censor content and to silence viewpoints they dislike, the executive order states. Well, Section 230 has many defenders in its current state, and Trump's attempt to uh, alter how social media platforms are regulated may be met with a, a great deal of resistance, but pointing out the hypocrisy and the, uh, the lack of uh, balance may be useful moving forward. We'll uh, continue to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. And when we return, a classic interview with Chris Bruno, Paul versus James. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Paul versus James. No, it's not a boxing match, but the book by the same name, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate, asks the question whether or not there are irreconcilable differences between the two. Everything you never knew about the men behind the controversy. Put uh, James and Paul next to each other and some tough to answer questions will come up. Paul says we're saved by faith alone. James seems to say the opposite. What does he? Well, this book, Paul versus James, dives into the life stories of both apostles, learning more about the context of their letters and discovers the truth about the shared message they both proclaimed. My guest is Dr. Chris Bruno. He serves as assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He previously taught Bible and theology at Cedarville University and Northland International University and served as a pastor at Harbor Church in Honolulu, Hawaii. He and his wife, Katie, have four sons. He joins us today to talk about his book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith works debate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. I'm so glad to be on with you. Well, I so appreciate your taking this um, this subject on because there does seem to be uh, not only discomfort but uncertainty about how to address um, the what the apparent controversy, the apparent contradiction between these two apostles who contributed to the scriptures and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's begin by uh, asking the question that your introduction raises: Are there irreconcilable differences between the two, or do we have uh, um, a misunderstanding about what's being said? Yeah, well, I, I absolutely agree with what you said a moment ago, in that these are both part of the inspired scriptures. They're part of holy scripture that God has given to us. And uh, not only that, when we actually read what they're saying and try to understand the, the context of their letters, both what they're arguing against and what they're arguing for, rather than seeing a contradiction, what we really have uh, with James and Paul is a remarkable harmony harmony, excuse me, and symmetry uh, in their messages. They, they hit a lot of the same notes. 
They might do it in a slightly different harmony, but they hit a lot of the same notes. Well, as you know, there are those historically in the church. In fact, the, this uh, James has been called the Epistle of Straw by who was it? Um, um, Martin, Luther. Martin Luther, thank you. Uh, so yeah. there's been real confusion, even among those uh, luminaries of the faith, as to whether or not um, these two agree with one another, or that perhaps James was just mistaken in what he had to, had to say. Yes, um, even uh, Martin Luther, as you said, called the Epistle of James a uh, epistle of straw that has nothing of the gospel about it, which sounds pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. Actually, as I was writing the book, I, I did a little more digging, and I found that, that Luther never rejected the book of James. He never said it wasn't part of Holy Scripture. He never said it wasn't part of the, the, the canon. What he did is he said uh, the gospel is not as clear in the epistle of James as it is in other books. So it, it's not quite as bad as it might first sound, mm-hmm. but it's still not something that I would agree with. But uh, the funny thing is, is Luther himself in other places said things that were very similar to what we see in James chapter 2 about the the inseparability of faith and works. In his preface to his commentary on Romans, he said, uh, like light and heat, faith and works are inseparable. So uh, while Brother Martin may have uh, spoken uh, a little bit uh, out of turn, uh, at the end of the day, I, I think he, he would have agreed with many of the things that that we're saying today. Now, why do you think there's so much confusion about how to reconcile uh, these two contributors to the New Testament and why they are often used as an example of uh, the the Bible being um, contradictory? Yeah, well, I mean, the verses that you alluded to a moment ago, uh, Romans 3.28, Paul says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That seems pretty clear, justification by faith alone. Uh, but then if you read in James 2, James 2.24, says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So uh, on the surface, that sounds pretty jarring. That sounds different. But I, I think one of the keys is to understand not only the, the bigger picture, that they're agreeing in the big picture of how they, they put faith and works together, but then even specifically in the context of their arguments, what they're arguing for and what they're arguing against. So Paul, on the one hand, says we are not justified by works of the law. And it's these certain kind of works that somehow make us right with God, that make us a part of his people. So what he's really arguing against at the end of the day, I think, is some kind of works righteousness. That is, we win our approval, we win our justification, we win our salvation uh, before God based on what we do. And to that argument, Paul says, no way. There's, we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone. Now, now James is arguing against a different opponent. James is arguing against people who might say, um, yes, we're justified by faith alone. So I believe that Jesus is Lord. Check. And they just sign a card or make some kind of uh, empty profession of faith or they just know the right things, or they know the right things to say. So th- this is uh, what some people call just intellectual assent. Yes, we kind of nod our head at that. But it doesn't actually transform us in any real way. This is the kind of faith that James is arguing against. So when he says justification is not by faith alone, he- he's not using faith the same way that Paul is. He- he's almost putting faith alone in like scare quotes there. 
we're not justified by quote unquote faith alone. The kind of faith that's just like the demons have. It's just knowing the right things, but not actually leaning on Christ as our Savior. One of the things in the first part of your book that you emphasize is the context in which uh, both James and Paul are teaching that they are addressing, as you've just pointed out, specific concerns um, that uh, emphasize or de-emphasize certain aspects of the faith. So context is important in understanding both James and Paul. And once we understand the context, we recognize that they're really on the same page, making the same point rather than uh, contradicting one another. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Their their broader context that they they shared so much. When you actually think about their whole life story and kind of zoom out that way, they shared. Uh, you know, they both grew up in Jewish homes where they learned the Old Testament. They grew up uh, reciting, no doubt, uh, the Torah, the Shema, Deuteronomy six four. But they also rejected Jesus as uh, the Messiah when they first. Uh, heard about him. So James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, The Gospel of John tells us that his brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. And then we know Paul's story from the book of Acts. He persecuted the church. So different in that way, but they both rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah until they, they both individually had an encounter with the risen Christ that really transformed their lives. And as a result of that, they both spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the same gospel message, teaching about the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and the new covenant, teaching about the fulfillment of the law, teaching about how Christians now on this side of the the cross and resurrection are to live in obedience to God. So they they have so much in common, both in their, their early history and in their later message. And even in the book of Acts, we see times where they interacted with each other and agreed together on the gospel message. You write in the introduction, New Testament, uh, the New Testament was not written in a sterile seminary classroom. They were writing field survival guides while, while they were in the field. As we understand their backgrounds and the shared message and mission of James and Paul, we might be surprised to find how close these men were. They had a shared commitment to reaching the entire Roman Empire, the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ at a time. Uh, and at times they worked closely together to devise a strategy for this mission. So uh, understanding the whole sweep of Scripture, the context in which each of these men uh, ministered, will help us understand their intent and the audience to whom they are speaking. Yes, that's correct. So, I mean, as, as, a, as I was mentioning a moment ago, they had a, a shared message. So we see in places like um, Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council is typically, uh, no, that chapter is typically called the Jerusalem Council, where the apostles came together to talk about how do we deal with these Gentiles who are coming to faith. And we see Paul and James agree on a shared gospel message. They agree that you know, salvation is by faith alone. They agree that Gentiles don't have to keep the law. And, so, and then they agree that Paul will go out to the Gentile churches and proclaim this gospel message to them. And so they have all this agreement, but then James stayed in Jerusalem for the rest of his life. So as we read the epistle of James, we see it's almost like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It has a very kind of a mm-hmm. Jewish feel to it. I mean, the whole New Testament has a Jewish feel to it. It's a, you know, written by Jewish Christians. But James in particular feels like the Proverbs of the Old Testament. He's writing to other Jewish Christians who know the law, who probably know the teaching of Jesus. He's correcting misunderstandings. And one of those misunderstandings apparently was that 
Uh, some were teaching kind of an extreme version of justification by faith alone. So it's a faith alone that doesn't require any law keeping, which is different than saying you don't have to keep the law to be saved. That, that's one thing. But to say after you're justified, it doesn't matter what you do. It's a whole different animal. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking about a fascinating book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Now, after considering their lives, their callings and the mission, uh, the context of their teaching, the next segment of the book um, focuses uh, and turns the attention on their teaching, each of their teachings on justification. So we'll uh, get into that when we return from this quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Chris Bruno. He's the author of Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. In the first part of the book, he looks at the lives of James and Paul, and it answers some of the questions we might otherwise have about what they're saying that seems to contradict. In the second part of the book, they took a, uh, he takes a look at the letters of James and Paul uh, and uh, their message and mission and uh, their teachings on justification. So again, uh, looking at whether or not there's a clear contradiction or there's harmony in the scriptures, even between James and the Apostle Paul. Well, let's let's go there um, in the second part of the book in which you look at their teachings on justification. Let's start with James, and then if you could uh, contrast that uh, with Paul. Sure. Um, maybe before I even contrast it, I'll, I'll, I'll note, note a point of commonality between mm-hmm. the two. It, in that they both cite the Old Testament. They're both quoting the Old Testament, and they're both quoting a specific verse from the Old Testament, Genesis 15, verse 6. And the reason why I bring that up is it's, it's important to notice how they're quoting that text and what they're looking at from the life of Abraham. So Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is the kind of fundamental statement of justification by faith alone in the Old Testament, really the foundation of the the doctrine and the whole rest of Scripture. So Abraham believed God. He believed God's promises. He believed God's covenant promises that he would, uh, through Abraham's family, bless all the nations and all that goes into that. So there's a a real sense in which Abraham had faith in Jesus, how much he knew, the specifics, things like that uh, we can debate about. But Abraham had faith in God's promises that culminated with Jesus. And as a result of that, he was declared righteous. He was justified. So James cites that verse in uh, James chapter 2 in his discussion of justification by faith. But he cites it kind of looking back over the whole scope of Abraham's life. He's kind of standing in Genesis 22. Now, Genesis 22 is the... uh, the account of Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, which was stopped at the last minute. But this is pointed to in the Old Testament as the fundamental example of Abraham's obedience. So what James is doing is looking at Genesis 15 through the later uh, obedience of Abraham in Genesis 22. And he's saying that Abraham's righteous status, he was declared righteous, the status was later fulfilled by his obedient actions. So really what James is saying is you cannot have justification by faith apart from good works. So he's teaching 
justification by faith. He never denies justification by faith in the in the way that we understand it. He he says we're not justified by faith alone in a fake way. We have a wrong understanding of faith. But he doesn't deny justification by faith. He simply says justification by faith results in a status which results in transformed lives. So it's all rooted in our union with Christ. So James is affirming uh, Genesis 15.6, and he's showing the fulfillment, the working out of Genesis 15.6 later in Abraham's life. Now, when Paul quite quotes that same verse in Romans 4, when he's talking about justification, he's standing at a different place in Abraham's life. He's actually standing in Genesis 15.6, we can put it that way, looking forward through the rest of Abraham's life. But in Genesis 15, 6, at that moment, when Abraham truly believed God's promises, he had the status righteous. He did nothing to earn that status of justified. The rest of his life bore that out. In fact, later in Romans 4, in Romans 4, uh, 20, Paul says that Abraham grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. So his life was transformed because of his faith is really the same message that James himself is teaching. So they're looking at Genesis 15, 6, but they're using it in slightly different ways. Paul's looking at the beginning of Abraham's life or the beginning of uh, his faith, and James is looking later, you know, decades after Abraham first believed God's promises and saying his justified status will be fulfilled through a transformed life. In the third part of the book, you look at the legacy of James and Paul. In other words, what difference does uh, what they teach make in the lives of the believer and uh, the life of the church? Yeah, that's right. I mean, at at the end of the day, uh, this teaching and our understanding of it should transform the way that we live. Uh, The way we understand faith and works is really important. And and the the church has... uh, struggled with this through the centuries in different ways. While most Christians throughout the centuries have recognized the difference between faith and works and the uh, inseparability of the two, uh, we tend to fall into a ditch on either side. Mm -hmm. We tend to fall into the ditch of uh, an illegalism and works righteousness, saying it's what I do that wins favor with God, it's what I do that justifies me, or we fall into the other ditch, which is as long as I say the right things and kind of give intellectual assent to the right things, then I'm fine, that I can live however I want. And, you know, there, there's variations of those two, but we, we tend to lean toward one of those on one side or the other. And those are exactly the things that Paul and James are arguing against. You write that to misunderstand the New Testament's unified teaching on faith, works, and justification will minimize the seriousness of sin, the transforming power of the gospel, and the very nature of our hope in Christ. This there, uh, this is no light matter. So trying to grasp what's being taught in Scripture in by these two uh, writers is essential to our full appreciation and the fullness of our walk uh, of faith. Absolutely. I mean... We are justified by faith alone, period. We are made right by faith because faith unites us to Christ, and Christ is our only hope. But as a result of that, anybody who is united to Christ will not be left alone. We will be transformed into his image. 
Um, and the, the whole Bible is crystal clear about both sides of this equation. And if we get one side or the other wrong, then we're, we're in danger of, of uh, falling off a cliff. To use the, these are more than ditches. They can be cliffs. And if we get it seriously wrong, we could distort the very message of the gospel and our hope of salvation itself. So it's a serious thing. Yes. Again, the title of the book, Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing on the Faith and Works Debate. The book is published by Moody, and I imagine available where books are, are available? Yes. Uh, Amazon, the Moody Publishers website. Uh, actually, in just a couple of days, on Friday uh, the 9th, there'll be a 50% off sale on the Moody Publishers website, so my book and others will be available then. Oh, excellent. So listeners do make note of it. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. In his uh, introduction, he writes, In his great wisdom, God gave us both Paul's epistles and the epistle of James. We ignore one or both of these to our great loss. But as we learn to read these letters as part of the glorious, unified teaching about justification, faith, and works, we will walk away with a stronger confidence in the unity of God's revelation in the whole Bible, greater faith in God's promises, and a deeper hope in the transforming work of the Spirit. Isn't that what we are after? Again, the book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate, beginning with looking at the lives of these two uh, writers uh, of the scriptures. And I think that helps give us the context that helps to clarify some of our confusion. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the hour, we'll talk with Dr. Jay Richards. He's the author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. We'll also talk with Joseph Whitcomb. He's running for mayor here in the city of Portland as a write-in candidate. We'll tell you more about him when he joins us later this hour. Well, recently, the Trump administration publicly rejected efforts to elevate abortion to an internationally recognized human right, and they fought efforts to permit abortion under the Trojan horse of sexual and reproductive health. Well, on the 22nd of this month, under the leadership of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, my next guest points out that uh, he, along with Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, stood alongside Brazil, Egypt, Hungary, Indonesia, and Uganda for a virtual signing ceremony of the Geneva Consensus Declaration. We'll tell you more about that uh, when she joins us here in just a moment. It needs to be applauded, recognized, and encouraged moving forward. Well, joining us is Melanie Israel. She's a research associate in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me to talk about this important development. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much going on. It would be easy to overlook this. Now, let's talk about this Geneva Consensus Declaration that includes the United States and several other countries. Sure, sure. Um, This is a a new development, and it's really exciting because it's not um, really something that we've seen from the United States government before. Um, What the declaration does is promote four key pillars that are um, a, a consensus agreement of all of these different countries. First of all, we all strive to have better health for women across the board, across the globe. Um, We want to preserve innocent human life. We believe that the the family is the foundational unit of society. But we also understand that each nation has their own sovereign interests. 
um, within global global politics, and they shouldn't be faced with you know external pressure from other countries to change their um, abortion laws, which unfortunately is something that we've seen a lot of at the United Nations in recent years. In addition to rejecting the notion that abortion is an international right, this also links uh, U.S. funding. Uh, with regard to women's health, to the rejection of abortion as a necessary pillar of that funding. Can you explain how that element um, is connected to the Mexico City policy that's been renamed, but uh, disassociates the, the United States, if you will, from the necessity of funding abortion abroad? Right, right. So to to take a step back, because your listeners might have heard about the the Mexico City policy over the years, it was a policy first enacted by President Reagan. Um, It's been in place under every Republican president since then, and it's been rescinded by every Democratic president since then. So unfortunately, it's been a little bit of a, a political ping pong ball. But what that policy has said is that United States foreign assistance funds are not going to be entangled with the abortion industry. And when President Trump took office, his administration took that policy a step further. They um, renamed it into the Protecting Life and Global Health Assistance Policy to be able to apply it not just to USAID foreign aid dollars, but to um, a, a whole lot more global health funding. I, I believe in fiscal year 2020, it was an estimated $7.3 billion. Mm. And the Trump administration has recently come out um, here just even a couple months ago with a new regulation to expand further this expanded policy to um, even more grants and contracts. And so over the course of the last almost four years here, they have really been doubling down on uh, this policy of just distangling U.S. taxpayer dollars from the performance and promotion of abortion overseas. And we've seen organizations like the International Planned Parenthood Federation, Marie Soaps International say that they will not comply with that policy. And so they are no longer accepting those foreign aid dollars. And a review recently found that women's health didn't suffer when those organizations took a step back because they wouldn't comply with this new pro-life policy. Other organizations who were willing to comply with these pro-life terms were able to step in and continue providing health care to people who need it. One of the charges these organizations uh, is making is that um, the amount of money available for health care has been reduced because that funding has been um, shifted away from them to other organizations. Is there merit to that charge that the United States is uh, spending less money uh, toward women's health? Or is it just that they are no longer on that list of eligible organizations by their own decision uh, to receive those funds? That's exactly right. These policies do not cut one penny from this global health funding. What they do is they set these pro-life stipulations and say, if you are going to be partnering with the U.S. government, if you are going to be accepting our taxpayer dollars, then your organization cannot be entangled with the abortion industry. It's the policy of the United States to respect innocent human life, including unborn human life. And so if, you know, these groups like International Planned Parenthood are not willing to comply with those terms, then that money is then able to be distributed to other organizations who do. Now, this pushback that we're seeing against aggressive abortion promotion um, is a, a move on the part of the um, the 
Trump administration along with these other countries. What does that say to the international community and how important is this not just to the United States taxpayer who no longer is being called upon to pay for abortion promotion, but in the international community, what kind of message does that send and what impact is it likely to have? Um, You know, I I think one of the things that has been overlooked a lot in these conversations is the fact that there are other countries across the globe who face a lot of pressure um, from from other countries to try to loosen their existing abortion laws, um, you know, contrary to the values of the people in those countries. And there there's a little bit of, um, I, I wouldn't say bribery, um, but really a lot of these foreign aid dollars for certain countries, it, it's almost like it's coming with strings attached. You know, mm-hmm. the, these international organizations come in and say, well, you know, we'd like to help you, but you, you really need to do something about your, your abortion laws here. And that, that kind of um, soft pressure is, is, is inappropriate for these sovereign nations to be facing. And so for a country like the United States, that's so powerful, that provides, you know, the vast majority of um, global health assistance funding to come in and not only say we ourselves are not going to be participating in this, but we believe that other sovereign countries shouldn't be facing pressure either. It's just very encouraging for these other countries to have Mm -hmm. such a powerful ally on their side. And that's something that we haven't really seen in years past. One of the things you write about is the fact that the U.S. can and should do more to ensure that U.S. taxpayer dollars aren't being used to support multilateral organizations that advocate for abortion. What would you recommend beyond what is has been done under the Trump administration that would go further in protecting um, U.S. taxpayer dollars uh, from these multilateral organizations that advocate for abortion? Sure, sure. So there is a uh, provision in U.S. law, it's called the Still Gender Amendment, that um, allows the U.S. government to be able to pull back from funding organizations if they are in the business of um, lobbying for or against abortion promotion overseas. And we've already seen that application happen um, when Secretary Pompeo cut off certain funding for the Organization of American States, one of these um, organizations. And so applying that sole gender amendment policy is something that could also happen for some of these other UN entities where we do see abortion promotion happening. Things like the um, Office of High Commissioner on Human Rights, the UN Women Organization, the World Health Organization. Um, There's a a whole lot of other um, places where the United States government could do what it did with the Organization of American States over that abortion promotion. So there's been a lot of encouraging developments here on the international pro-life policy front, but there are definitely other areas that the administration could step in as well going forward. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for talking with us today. I sure appreciate your insight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Melanie Israel is a research associate in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Jay Richards. He's the author of The Price of Panic. We'll talk about how the tyranny of experts turned a pandemic into a catastrophe when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I suppose we wouldn't be altogether surprised to learn that YouTube and Vimeo don't tolerate a diversity of opinions. Well, they refused to, re- to publish a video interview with Dr. Jay Richards about the science, data, and facts that contradict the mass media opinion on COVID-19. Well, they have their reasons for removing the video. We'll talk about those in a moment. But the interview was regarding a new book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. It's written by a trio of scholars, a biologist, a statistician, and a philosopher. And they came to the conclusion that the human cost of the emergency response to COVID-19 has far outweighed the benefits. We're here to talk not only about YouTube and Vimeo and their intolerance for a diversity of opinion on the subject, and of course, they represent many media outlets, is uh, Dr. Jay Richards. He's the author of uh, one of the authors of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Georgine. Now, were you surprised that the video interview that I just referenced was rejected by YouTube and Vimeo? I was a little bit. I mean, you know, I've done dozens of interviews. The book came out about two weeks ago. This was actually, this came out the day uh, that the book is released on October 13th. It was actually on YouTube uh, for a week or so, and then somebody caught word of it. It's a 40-minute 40, 40 kind of straightforward video podcast and, and pulled it unceremoniously. And so I was honestly a little surprised, but on the other hand, half the book is about the role that the media and social media have played in terrifying the public. And so I, of mm. all people, am acutely aware of their power to do these sorts of things. So it's sort of an unflattering portrait of the role that they're playing. Now, Vimeo says you cannot upload videos that depict or encourage self-harm, falsely claim that mass tragedies are hoaxes, or perpetuate false or misleading claims about vaccine safety. YouTube says violation of our community guidelines, spam, deceptive practices, and scams cannot be published. And these are the the reasons they gave for removing the video. Is that what your uh, interview was about, uh, trying to mislead the public or simply providing a, um, an overview of uh, a comprehensive assessment, if you will, of what you describe as the worst pandemic or panic-induced disaster in our history? Well, certainly the latter. And in fact, what we're <laughs> saying is actually comparable to what a World Health Organization official said just about the time the book came out. We certainly don't claim that COVID-19 is a hoax, which is absurd. We obviously don't uh, advise self-harm. Uh, and nobody's pointed out any factual errors, actually, in the interview. I think that this, in some ways, this sort of looks like a general retroactive policy, almost uh, designed to gerrymander out of existence any skeptical uh, interviews or news coverage about the lockdowns, frankly. That's what it looks like. It looks like, okay, let's come up with these rules. We'll never kind of specify any of these things, but we'll claim that these people are claiming that the coronavirus is a hoax or something like that. Not, anybody that's seen the interview will know that's not true. Yeah, yeah. You point out that for the first time in history, the world shut itself down by choice for fear of a virus that was not well understood. The government, with the support of most Americans, ordered the closure of tens of thousands of small businesses, many never to return. Almost every school and college in the country sent the students home to finish the school year in front of a computer. Churches canceled their services. Social distancing went from a non-word to a moral obligation overnight. Part of the reason this is relevant is because, as you also point out in the book, the world will reopen and life will go on, but what kind of world will it be after what we have just lived through? And was it um, was it worth it? Was it the right thing to do? Well, that's really the question because um, the, the truth of the matter is, is that these these planet wide lockdowns, population wide lockdowns, have never really been tried. This is not 
uh, standard of care in these cases. What you're supposed to do is quarantine the sick and isolate those people that are particularly high risk. But locking down the entire population has all of these unintended consequences. In fact, you could end up killing more people from the lockdown than is actually saved. Unfortunately, in the book, we actually analyze the lockdowns in the different states. And what we find is that it's not just that the costs are greater than the benefits. The government lockdowns themselves probably didn't make any difference in the spread of the virus. Whatever happened beneficially probably happened initially from voluntary actions that people made when they got news. But there's no evidence that the government lockdowns themselves uh, made any particular difference at all. So in some ways, it's sort of all pain and no gain, unfortunately. Now, I know that you take a deep dive into some of the questions that Americans all across the country are asking, but really find it difficult to find answers to because the kind of analysis your interview provided is simply not permitted. One of the questions is, what will the total cost be, not just in dollars and livelihoods, but the cost in lives of the response from governments that relied on uh, the advice from scientists that oftentimes contradicted each other, and even medical professionals who held a position that didn't uh, comport with what the mainstream media has embraced were not permitted to speak, uh, you know, in the context of science, what they believed was in our best interest. I mean, that was what was so eerie about this. We tell stories of reputed scientists. I mean, these are people yes. like Harvard and Yale and Stanford who had their videos pulled down from YouTube because they're supposedly anti-science. But when you look to see, okay, so what's YouTube's standard? It was usually, well, some official working for the government or working for the World Health Organization. Somehow they become the, the mouthpiece of science. Well, that's, it's not like being a government official in public health. That, that's not the gold medal of scientific wisdom. That doesn't make you right. And so this idea that YouTube somehow is going to be the arbiter of which scientists are right on this, it, it, it beggars the imagination. And so in some ways, you know, get, getting my video pulled down for talking about the kinds of things that YouTube had done in other cases with, with reputable scientists, I mean, I guess it's sort of par for the course. Mm. Now, what role have the global health organizations like the World Health Organization, the CDC here and other organizations, what role have they played uh, in all of this? And are they accountable? And if so, to whom, if not um, allowing the American people to consider and weigh the, the varying views on the right response? Well, that's, yeah, the World Health Organization for sure played a massive role because the director general, unfortunately, he basically glommed on to a predictive computer model out of the Imperial College London in, in March, which that's where we got this number of 2.2 million Americans dead unless we locked down the economy. Dr. Fauci heard the same thing, told President Trump that. That all, that's where that number, 2.2 million dead, came from. It wasn't from evidence. It was from a predictive computer model based on the assumptions plugged into the model, which we knew within weeks were false. And so this idea that, frankly, a few science bureaucrats uh, believing a predictive model that wasn't based on the evidence should end up having the power to effectively shut down the world. It's, it's terrifying. That's why the subtitle of our book talks about the tyranny of experts. We can't prevent it from happening in 2020, but we hope we can do some things to at least prevent this from happening again in 2021. Now, how did these scientists who relied on murky data, speculative computer models, gain the power to shut down the global economy? How did that happen? Well, it happens because of these weird incentives in which you have an entity like the World Health Organization, which is the public health arm of the United Nations, and then you have public health officials plugged into governments around the country, the world, not just the United States. In fact, most countries ended up in this situation. And it's a weird series of incentives. The idea is not that public health officials are somehow evil. It's that they have an incentive 
to overshoot. So if they say, well, 100 people are going to die and a million die, well, that's a disaster for them. They say a million die, they shut down the economy, and then a thousand die, they can say, well, we saved all those people by doing it. Mm -hmm. So they have a kind of a natural incentive uh, to terrify. Then you add to that the media and the social media, which held up these officials as sort of these infallible oracles. And that's where you get a problem. What you want is a body of scientists that are actually able to duke it out and to argue so that the political leaders that have to make this decision realize right at the beginning that the science itself is not absolutely simple, that it's complex. And that would, you know, politicians would make a different set of decisions if they did that. On the other hand, they're told, well, no, lock it down or millions of people will die. Uh, That's the only choice they have. And we think that's the problem. When a few isolated officials in the administrative state end up speaking for science as a whole, you're just, that's a recipe for disaster. Well, once again, the book is titled The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. I think one of the most important books of this year and into the next. Uh, I want to have you or one of your associates back to talk at greater length about um, different elements in the book, but I did at least want to introduce it to our listeners today and look forward to a broader conversation in the days ahead. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and pointing out how these two um, online entities have simply decided, nah, we're not going to let the, uh, the message out. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Once again, that was Dr. Jay Richards, author, co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Up next, we'll talk with Joseph Whitcomb. If you're not familiar with the name, he's running a write-in campaign for Portland's mayor. We'll find out why. And if you're interested, how you can write him in. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, if you happen to be a resident in the city of Portland and you're looking at your ballot, you might be, well, scratching your head, frustrated. I could think of a whole long list of words to apply to the choice we've been given for the mayor of the city of Portland. One to the left, one further to the left. Well, are there alternatives? My next guest, Joseph Whitcomb, is a write-in candidate for the next mayor of the city of Portland. I wanted to find out more about this native Portlander, why he's running, how he's getting the word out, and what he sees is the, in the best interest of Portland moving forward. Joseph Whitcomb, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate this. Now, I can't imagine a more challenging time to try to launch a write-in campaign. How have you managed to communicate with the public? I mean, I, I've heard about your, your run, but how have you managed to communicate with the public that you are an alternative to the candidates who will be on the ballot for Portland mayor? Uh, well, Georgine, that's, uh, that's been a difficult race for me. Um, I've used social media as much as I possibly can. Uh, I've reached out to the news outlets uh, with, uh, with no luck there. But um, my supporters have really done a, a really good job at um, uh, helping me get the word out, uh, sharing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, yeah, that's my, my main avenue. In fact, the the main way that I heard about your campaign was through a listener to this program who emailed me about your efforts. Now, let's talk about who you are. You work in the materials department audit group of a manufacturing company. You've been there for 23 years. As I mentioned, you're a native Portlander. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, I would love to. So uh, I'm married. I have four daughters, uh, five grandchildren. Uh, Number six is due in February of 2020. Congratulations. Um, I'm an Eagle Scout. Uh, never served in the military. Um, wish I could. I wish I would have. Uh, I started working just before my 15th birthday, and uh, I've been at it for 42 years now. 
Um, I've worked uh, as a backup foreman, foreman team lead. Uh, I've had temporary supervisor roles. I've uh, even managed a small business in the past. Uh, 20 years uh, after high school, I went back uh, or was, had the opportunity due to a layoff to go to college where I picked up uh, a criminal justice degree and a degree uh, of uh, juvenile uh, justice certificate. You know, when I was on the honor roll, I'm kind of proud of this for myself, a 3.88 GPA. Um, and as you said, I, uh, I've been working with the company that I'm at now for the last 23 years, and uh, I'm a part of their audit group. Um, and, you know, and the reason why I jumped into this, uh, this whole mess is because of who we're looking at as our choices. Like I couldn't, I couldn't sit on the couch anymore and just be a, uh, an armchair quarterback. Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that lots of Portland residents are very frustrated by the choice they have been given to be the next mayor of the city of Portland. I want to talk about your view on a number of issues in just a moment. But what do you say to the voter who's looking at that ballot? Uh, And this would be a write in campaign. So your name will not appear on it. They would have to use your full name, Joseph Whitcomb, uh, in order for your name to appear on that ballot. But um, what do you say to those who say, look, one of these two top names on the ballot are going to be our next mayor. It's a matter of uh, how far left you want to go. If I do a write-in vote for Mr. Whitcomb, then essentially I'm, I'm withdrawing my influence on the outcome in the, the, uh, the larger race with the two big names. What are your uh, thoughts and your response to that concern that some of our listeners might have? You know, that's a question I get a lot. Um, so there's, there's actually three people on the left side. You've got uh, Wheeler, Ianaron, and Rayford, who is also a write-in. So those three people are 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 getting are looking after the same voter. So the left side, they're only getting left side. We've got uh, right now a walk-away movement where Democrats are leaving and and coming over to the right side and becoming Republicans and voting Republican. As I'm a conservative, I'm the only one in this platform for this race on that side. Mm -hmm. So I'm gaining a lot of ground uh, through the conservative vote, through the walkaway movement and, um, and the independent vote. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking really well, you know, I saw, I saw a poll the other day that showed uh, Wheeler and Ian Rohn equal, and then it showed uh, Rayford at about 50% of them. And then it showed uh, right in undecided, which was equal to Sarah and Ted. Hmm. That's me. I'm that third, that last position. I'm out there. People are writing me in and I'm liking that. It makes me (laughs) feel good that they're ready for change. And that's what I offer, change. Well, let me ask you about some of the major issues facing the city of Portland. We have, of course, um, weeks and weeks of protests. We have the defund police effort, which uh, the city council just in the last day or two have suggested they're going to continue to defund. Uh, We have uh, homelessness as a major problem. Let's begin with uh, the city's response to violence that has plagued the city for weeks now since the death of George Floyd that seems to have spin, spun far away from the, the core issue that this was supposed to have been about to just violence and rioting. What is your solution for Portland in dealing with the protests and the crime? You know, um, bottom line is we've got to make our streets safe. Uh, now, how do we get there? That's that's difficult. Everybody has a different opinion on that. I'm thinking that recently we had three major groups in Portland. 
They were uh, BLM, Antifa, and the Proud Boys. They were all at three different parks, all at the same time. We brought in a police presence, and we did, we ended the day peacefully, mm-hmm. like they're supposed to be. So if we continue in that process where we've put a curfew on the nighttime, you know, no gatherings after 10 o'clock uh, of, of large crowds, we say, you have a park, you can come here, get your permit, you can hang out in the park, you can say what you want to say, you can do what you want to do. We're going to bring in the police. We're going to make sure that everything remains peacefully. You guys can say what you want and, and hold your First Amendment rights. But after a certain time, it's time to, to end and go home. That's my goal is to start there. It's worked. We've seen it work. And, and I think we can continue that. What about the subject of homelessness that has plagued the city uh, in ways that we have not seen in our history before, certainly not in our lifetime? That is that is really uh, an immense uh, problem that we have here in Portland and, and actually around the United States. Um, I've looked in some programs uh, and, and I think that I want to bring those in, but I, I, some of the easiest or simplest ways are, are we're going to stop opening our door for anyone just to come here and live in, in hopes to getting free benefits. Uh, that's not the taxpayer's responsibility. So um, I want to, uh, you know, maybe enlist a program where we can send these people back to their homes, give them a, help them get a ticket to get back there so they can get the assistance from where, where they're from with their families and their friends. Uh, with, in regards to our own uh, Portlander people who are on the streets, well, we have a lot of programs out there. We need to look at those, define them, get rid of any of the excess of the money is getting to where it needs to be. That's the people who need it. Get them the help. We have buildings all over the all over the Portland area that, that are not being used, that are usable. Uh, what do we need to do to get those buildings to make it accessible for, to get these homeless people off the streets? Um, and programs. Come on, we, you know... Um, the mental health issues and, and addicts, uh, drug and alcohol, we need to get these people involved. Of course, it's going to be hard when they don't want to. Um, and, and so we're going to have to find ways to come to them to help them get themselves clean. I don't want to uh, provide a way for them to continue their lifestyle. I want to provide a way for them to get out of that lifestyle. We're just about out of time, and there's a lot more that we could probably talk about. But for our listeners who are interested in learning more about your campaign and how to successfully write in a candidate, what's the best place for them to go? Um, my webpage, which is uh, com. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-W-H-I-T-C-O-M-B for mayor. There's a lot of information there. That's also linked to my Facebook page where they can read posts comments and replies, and really get to understand who I am. Well, Joseph, I appreciate your giving the city of Portland an alternative to what we have been given, which I think has frustrated a lot of people here, and would encourage our listeners to check you out at Joseph Whitcomb for Mayor. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. Appreciate it, and uh, good luck. Thank you, Georgine. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Joseph Whitcomb for Mayor. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, among U.S. Protestant pastors, 1% say they publicly endorsed a candidate for public office during a church service this year. 98% have not. That's according to a new study from a Nashville-based Lifeway Research. Those numbers are unchanged from 2016. Well, around a third of pastors uh, say that they have personally endorsed political candidates this year outside of their church role, and that marks a 10-point jump from 2016 when 22% of Protestant pastors made an endorsement. Um, It's interesting. I think pastors are certainly uh, well within their rights to endorse candidates. I would encourage them to do so, and particularly issues if not candidates. So that's a good thing. But I have to tell you, with regard to this election, I'm certainly concerned about the outcome. I care who wins. I care what direction the country goes. But I'm far more concerned about unity in the church. Now, I'm not linking the pastor endorsing a candidate to disunity within the church, but what I am suggesting is how we respond to this election matters to the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about where your vote goes, although, you know, I have an opinion. Um, I have a strong opinion on a number of issues and candidates, but what I'm concerned about is what happens after we cast those ballots, after a winner in this election is, well, eventually named, how do we as the body of Christ relate to one another? Do we remember the words of Jesus and the gospel of John about unity and how that is preeminent as we relate to one another? Or do we allow politics to continue to divide us in ways that that further weakens the body of Christ in its primary assignment here on earth as ambassadors for Christ? Uh, Again, returning to this new study, they say that while the percentage of pastors endorsing politicians has increased in the last four years, and by the way, historically, pastors were very outspoken uh, in terms of politics, most still avoid publicly backing specific candidates, even apart from their role in the church. In 2020, 65% say they have not endorsed a politician, three quarters or 77% said the same in 2016. Pastors are more decided on who they're voting for in 2020, so it's not surprising that more pastors have shared their opinions with others personally. The candidates endorsed by pastors may be local, state, or national, but those who do so in an official church capacity are a rare exception. I have noticed in terms of national figures, they're not necessarily just pastors, but uh, Bible teachers and some pastors who have national notoriety. A significant number of them have come out, in fact, I shared one of them yesterday, have come out to either endorse Um, or to discourage others from endorsing a particular candidate. And while that may seem um, somewhat unusual in the 21st century, and given this survey from the uh, Nashville-based Lifeway Research, uh, it isn't historically all that unusual. And we would do well to have vigorous debates and conversations about what's not only in the best interest of uh, the nation, but what's in the best interest of the church and the, the, the body of Christ, our freedom to live our religious faith out with, uh, uh, with freedom and in peace. Uh, those are all important issues and conversations that, uh, that should be had. But what matters most for us is what happens after. Is the vitriol we're seeing in the broader culture going to seep into the church so that we can no longer claim the unity that is a work of the Spirit in us that uh, that tells the world that we have been with Jesus, that we love one another, that we love him, and we extend the love of Christ out into the world? That's my primary concern. Somebody's going to be the next president of the United States. It may be someone I uh, endorse. It may be someone I wholeheartedly reject. That matters, but what matters more is what's happening in the body of Christ, what's happening in the kingdom of God. And 
So I hope as we are praying for the outcome of the election, we'll also be mindful of and praying for the unity in the church that is ultimately required for us to effectively minister to our culture, that we would somehow, with our broad disagreements, uh, that we would somehow be able to reflect the unity that Jesus calls us to, that we would be one in him as he and the Father are one, that would say something remarkable to the world. And I would go so far as to say, given the uh, sharp divisions that exist among us, if we as the body of Christ would somehow, holding those different views, somehow reflect unity, that would speak volumes to the world that perhaps in times that are less um, divided uh, would have very little impact. So my prayer is for the body of Christ, for the church, for each of us as followers of Jesus, that we would love one another as the scripture says we ought. That's going to require the work of the Holy Spirit within each one of us because we don't have the moral fortitude or maybe even the desire to live out that that love for one another, that unity that the scriptures call us to. And again, we're going to see a move of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts and across the board within the body of Christ when we purpose to make our number one priority the number one priority, and that is to serve as representatives of Christ, his hands and feet, and it goes beyond uh, just the the um, elections that come and go. So I hope as we're praying, we're praying for that as well. Well, there's a lot of prayer going on around the country. As I mentioned earlier in the program, um, there's a prayer vigil that's going to be taking place in Washington, D.C. on Election Day and all across the country. But I also wanted to mention a multi-city nationwide tour of prayer and praise called Let Us Worship. It made its way to Washington, D.C. this Sunday evening, this past, and it drew tens of thousands from all across the country. The gathering was spearheaded by Sean Foyt uh, with uh, the 45th event of its kind this year. I know he's become somewhat controversial. Some have questioned his motives. Some uh, even believers that I've read on Facebook here were critical of uh, of the move. I I hope we can just remove Sean Foyt from uh, from the whole factor and consider the fact that men and women of faith have come together to worship. They're not worshiping Sean Foyt. He and the musicians rather are playing the instruments and they're choosing and leading the songs, but this is a prayer and praise event uh, that is not focused on the worship leader. It's designed to encourage Christians to intercede with God for the country in the midst of a very bitter election cycle, a pandemic, racial unrest, and they're pointing to efforts by state leaders like California Governor Gavin Newsom to silence singing in worship as the impetus behind this, this effort. Now, Foyt cautioned that the church should not ever react in fear and intimidation, but rather always embody a fearless devotion to Christ. And that sentiment was echoed by several who attended, including Minnesota resident Rhoda Mel, who said, we here, we're here standing peacefully, protesting by praising God, believing that this is his war, that this is his battle, and he will win. She was referencing the number of churches that have been closed in recent months. The church is confused about whose authority they need to respect and respond to. We need to fear the Lord first and then honor the king. Well, of course, um, There are lots of different views within church leadership as to the appropriate way to respond. Some churches have gone to technology to allow the church to gather in a loosely configured worship time uh, using technology, the Internet, YouTube uh, and, and Facebook and so on. Others have decided that they're going to meet in Uh, buildings. Some have decided they're going to use their larger facilities to allow gatherings of a certain number scattered throughout a building. Uh, And again, this is an issue that could divide us as the body of Christ. Our church did this, and therefore we are um, are followers of Christ who should be admired more so than those who 
um, met electronically. Whatever choices are being made about how we gather, let's not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, even more as the day grows, grows nearer. But let's encourage one another. Let's lift each other up, as the scripture uh, suggests. And let's be praying for the country, but let's also pray for the body of Christ, that we would represent the heart of Christ in the midst of all of this. And people would look to us as followers, as members of his church, as members of one another, as reflecting his heart and the peace that only he can give in the midst of such chaos. We're out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.